Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexperts Briefing Room, a new series. Trexperts Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted me. I'm sorry. It's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can <laughs> find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And we're coming to you once again <laughs> from lockdown here in 2021. We hope to be back in the studio by now, but clearly uh, we'll be lucky if we get into the studio sometime this year. It was not but, to be, uh, Sheree. But not today, Sheree. <laughs> it was not to be, Sheree. But um, we are very lucky because uh, we it gives us the opportunity to revisit one of our favorite guests who's up north. Uh, and uh, we are welcoming back to the show. He's, you know, him as the Oscar winner for, for Inner Space and uh, uh, acclaimed visual effects supervisor and model maker. And, and he's very... I won't say shy, but he, he's very modest. So I'm not going to go on and on about how immensely talented he is. But all you need to do is look him up or hear him speak. And you will you will know. You will know. Or go back to our original episode that we were lucky enough to have uh, Bill join us for as a longtime listener of the show. Um, but uh, for now, we're just thrilled to have him back. Bill, Bill George, welcome back. 
Thank you, Mark. Uh, and I will say that you are the best salesman on the face of the earth. So thank you for that. I... <laughs> Do I hear 300? Uh, yes, exactly. And joining us this time, uh, straight back from the Burnett work, he's pop culture commentator extraordinaire. He's back in his Rob cave. It's Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back, Rob. Well, it's, it's great to be here because, you know, Mr. George is a legend. And uh, I, I really just came here to talk to him about Twilight. <laughs> oh, then you may be sorely disappointed. <laughs> you know, that's that's one of those movies that I worked on, but I never saw. <laughs> that's amazing. You never know. It, it, it might be a, a lovely balance there. Oh, my God. It, it, this is reminding me of that Parks and Rec episode where they're doing the time capsule. And um, well, who was it? it? It wasn't Bill Hader. It was... Um, uh, I forget who who insists that they put a copy of Twilight in the time capsule in Pawnee. Nice. Can't get it. Can't get away from Twilight. Well, we uh, also but, we also can't uh, forget that uh, Bill George is the docent of the Sci-Fi Air Show. Yes, which indeed. is one of the greatest things ever. That's why they made the internet <laughs> so we could have the Sci-Fi Air Show. Sci-FiAirShow.com. Visit it. It's great. I just and, got know, a Spindrift recently... T-shirt today. They recently got a life-size eagle, uh, fortunately, um, and uh, is now on display at the air show. And for those of you who've been listening to our show recently, for our incredibly in-depth Space 1999 coverage, you may want to visit the air show. I, I, you know, you can't go there in person right now due to the lockdown, but you can visit <laughs> it online at Sci-Fi Air Show, and that's probably the best way to experience it. Well, plus, and you'll be plus due to the eagle's uh, presence there, there is a very high rate of magnetic radiation. So you need, to, <laughs> you need to stay a good distance away from it. Yes, unless you're Commander Simmons. So uh, <laughs> you definitely should, should, should uh, you will not be disappointed. You know, it's, it's uh, we talked about this the last time. The Sci-Fi Air Show is just, it's really, it's just something very special. It's the greatest and, thing uh, ever. You're, 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 you know, particularly it was my fantasy, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I wanted to bring it to life and share it with other people. And I, it's sad though that I sometimes have to burst people's bubble. Some people think that it really exists and they want to know what when you, it's coming to their town. What are you talking about? about? What do you mean it doesn't, it doesn't really exist? What are you saying? Oh, it, it exists, but <laughs> never mind. You're a Go bad Google, man. Ma Google Maps does not have a good way to get there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's because they have to keep it's only, it's by invitation only, Mark. You have to like know where it is. You have to know people. Yeah. No. <laughs> Exactly. Well, so you may be wondering, what are we doing today? Are we just sitting here talking about stuff? No, we're Pretty talking much. about ships. We haven't, you know, we've talked about uh, captains in the past. We talked about, obviously, recently we did our 101 greatest sci-fi TV episodes ever. Um, we've done uh, all, all kinds of deep dives, but we never really done a deep dive into the ships of Star Trek. And uh, we recently told, talked to Ben Robinson over at Eagle Moss, uh, who's doing a lot of these replicas. But we thought it'd be really fun to have Bill back on the show and sort of break down and look at the history of Star Trek ships and sort of look at some of our favorite favorite starships and uh, ships in the Star Trek universe. Now, um, uh, you know, it, it's going to be tough because we all know what our favorite ship is, I imagine. Uh, but but uh, we'll, we'll find out uh, how it all breaks down as, as we get into it. By the way, I don't know, Bill, uh, we just finished our um, 101 sci-fi greatest television episodes ever. 
which was quite the undertaking. Four eight episodes, hours eight hours of uh, shows. Um, but I, I want to ask you, since you're our first guest, since uh, we recorded that, um, what's your number one favorite episode of science fiction TV ever? Oh, wow. Boy, that's a tough one. Like I mentioned uh, last time I was on the show, I'm very slutty. I like a lot of different things. And it's just, even in the original series, I mean, I, I would probably have to go back to that just because that's where my love for mm -hmm. this started. Mm -hmm. But um, can, can I list more than of one? Course, absolutely may. One? We did 101. And one <laughs> of those was Journey Inside the Robot. So, you know, anything is possible on this show. It, you know, I was over the holiday break, I was watching The Menagerie slash The Cage and just realizing how brilliant that episode is because they, they did it, of course, because they wanted to catch back up in their production schedule and figure out a way to use a episode that was already shot. And yet what they created was, it, it really surpassed that. And it's so emotional. The whole thing in the beginning where you, you know what Spock is doing and he's, he's doing it, he's taking all these risks for his previous commander. And it reflects on kind of his relationship with Kirk as well, yeah. that you know that he has these deep, meaningful relationships with these people that he would risk anything for. And it was very, very emotional. So I think that one, definitely. The other one I would list is uh, Visit to a Hostile Planet uh, and Lost in Space, where yeah. they go back to, what is it, 1941, 1945, something like that. Yeah. Um, I just, for, as a kid, for some reason, I guess any episode where there was a possibility that I'd be able to connect to these fantastic worlds really struck a chord with me. And that one, that somehow they would be able to go back in time, maybe to when I was living, you know, in yeah. 1969, 70, that they would be able to come back and I'd be able to go on the ship. Yeah. We had... Um... A really amazing number of Lost in Space episodes in our 101. Well, that's because I um, picked most of the Lost in number, Space episodes. No, th well, three. That's, that's maybe not an amazing number, but it's it's pretty high given the fact that uh, X-Files only had two. Uh, Firefly won, <laughs> but Lost in Space had three. So um, it, it's a very it's a fascinating countdown that we did. And I like talking about it because we spent eight hours doing it. <laughs> <laughs> But those are those are great, great picks. And, and um, uh, you know, I wish we had. Um, well, the menagerie slash the cage is is absolutely um, just a monumental achievement. And, you know, for anybody who dismisses Gene Roddenberry's creative bona fides, you know, you, you, you hold that up and say, yeah, you took a, a, an unproduced pilot with a different cast that you couldn't do anything with and turned it into a two episode uh, uh, part episode of the TV series and were able to broadcast it and, and film a minimal amount of new footage, the envelope around it. I mean, that was genius. Yeah. And, ex and expand the backstory tenfold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for the first time you added a history to the Star Trek universe, there was a, now a, a talk about a starship. There's a, the enterprise herself had a design lineage it started out one way and obviously there were cosmetic changes and there were changes inside the bridge. The technology had evolved and it was all just there. Matter of fact, just because of how it was made. And yet it created a history that gave birth to how many technical manuals it created and how canon. many space flight. Yes, it did. How it many created canon. No. And, and that's a great segue into the subject of, of today's episode, which of course is uh, best, uh, you know, vehicles best star trek vehicles so i want to start 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just start with best starship. I want to start, I want to, you know, start at a, a far away from that. So if we're going to do best space station in Star Trek history, <laughs> what, what would, what would that be for you? I'm going to start, I'm going to put you on the spot, Bill. What, what <laughs> best spaceship, a best, best uh, a space station. Space station. Sure. <sighs> Before you can have the ships, you got to have the space station or the dry dock. <laughs> oh boy this you know i think this is going to be a lot tougher than i thought because <laughs> it, 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 there, there are so many of them and and what criteria are you using i think Up the term you. i think the term best is not fair favorite. i think a favorite is is better favorite the, then you're not you're not making judgment calls you're just talking about your own personal yeah, that, that's opinion. a good way to put it because of course in deference to you you know, you worked on a lot of these and, and you designed some and uh, f- friends and colleagues and uh, were involved in some of these. So, uh, I, you know, we don't want to put you in a situation where you're determining best, but I would say favorite. And of course, you can rec- recuse yourself if you need to. <laughs> I know in the past, we've all found ourselves needing to recuse ourselves from certain conversations for various reasons involving work and other things. So, right, right. Uh, I guess the first one that pops into my head is the space, just the space dock, even though it's so ridiculously huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think the design of it was very Star Trek. It was, it was graceful and beautiful. It had a wonderful paint job on it. And it harkened back to the Franz Joseph tech manuals where they had these space stations that you saw all the ships kind yes. of parked inside. Yeah. And so it really kind of struck a chord with me. I think dramatically too, it played a fun part in the film. You know, there was the, are the doors going to open in time for them to get out? Once again, it makes no logical sense, but uh, I think it was, it did its job really well. Which is interesting that you say it made no logical sense because didn't the main idea from it come from Leonard Nimoy? I have no idea. I think so. That's what I heard. (laughs) <laughs> it had its debut in Star Trek Three, right. and is probably yeah. one of the things about Star Trek Three that works the best because you have that marvelous scene of stealing the Enterprise, as you say, that race to get out of a uh, space dock before the doors close, and you know it's just this kind of iconic image of all these ships, you know, sort of docked in um, in the space dock uh, that was you know then used ad nauseum, including in Next Generation. Also, um, the establishing shot. The first time that you see space dock is that tracking shot. You're tracking with the Enterprise, you know, in orbit, in moving into Earth orbit, and you haven't seen space dock before, and it's revealed in this gorgeous pan up, and it, it you could have had a better establishing shot. Again, ILM at the height of its powers, um, just showing us something we'd never seen before. Again, establishing something canonical that was new. Uh, new to Star Trek three and adding to the universe. And it's just gorgeous to look at that. It's just beautiful. And then as the enterprise goes in before it goes out of the doors, it goes into the doors and it's just, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And you see Janice Rand in the observation deck, standing up and looking at the enterprise as it pulls into a, uh, it halts and you see the battle damage from Star Trek two on the, and she it cuts back to her. She's just, Oh no, you know, makes that. What have reaction. they done to her now? And- yeah. No. Oh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's so funny. This is not the first time that Darren has mentioned, well, the scale makes no sense. Right. But you know, it's interesting. You guys both pointed that out because of course your model makers, visual effects, uh, gurus, uh, artists, um, designers, you know, and, for, and it's funny because for Rob and I as writers, 
the scale thing, I, I can't speak for Rob, but never bothered me. I just thought it was cool. So I yeah. never once thought that, oh, well, this, the scale would never make sense because if a starship is this big, the space dock would have to be. I just thought it was really, really cool. But I think it's <laughs> fascinating that you guys have both. Uh, and and I, I remember someone else pointing that out as well once on the show. Oh, but the scale makes no sense. So that, that to me is very interesting. No, and I, I think it's marvelous pick. Absolutely. If you if you analyze the concept of it, it's a little goofy. It works well for the story, but in terms of the the technology that had already been established in Star Trek, it kind of doesn't make any sense because you have this, uh, you know, in the first film, you have this wonderful idea of the uh, uh, it's not a space dock, but it's the dry dock, which is a a structure that is around the ship and yet is still open to space, and you can still access the ship through um, through attaching corridors and stuff like that. Uh, but you have a complete freedom to move around it more than once in the first film uh but uh, and and look at what's going on and it seems that space dock is so much more restrictive for that and there's no there's no question about you know do they do this for security do they do this to keep the keep people from stealing ships i mean you know obviously it's it's kind of odd but you know it serves, the, it serves the story. I, I, I would rebut that because right now, you know, there's talk that the Chinese have built like this huge underground. It's almost like Stromberg, like layer or more blood where they're building their, their sub fleet. But so spy satellites cannot see what they're building. Like they've literally hollowed out islands, you know, and, and it's, it's a, a real concern for national security because we have no idea what they're doing. So it's the same thing, you know, with space stock, but more importantly to that, to me, it's the, 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 the Blue Bayou. I love the Blue Bayou at Disneyland, right? Because you can sit and have di lunch and dinner <laughs> and watch Pirates of the Caribbean come <laughs> circle around and come in. So you, we saw in Star Trek Three them sitting at the restaurant, right? And then the ships sort of come by and dock and it's really cool. It's like the blue bayou of the 23rd century. <laughs> also, who's to say that space dock is, I, I never saw space dock as necessarily, I mean, obviously the enterprise needs to be repaired, but it's also like, I thought it kind of like a giant hotel. I mean, it's a huge complex where alien races can come in and come and go and disembark and, and, and sort of enjoy themselves and fraternize with the rest of the Federation. I mean, to me, it was sort of like a gateway to Earth. So it wasn't necessarily when you build the, the dry docks, get pulled around a ship where they can, they can, I mean, obviously the Enterprise was there for months and months and months being redesigned and refitted, but in the dry dock- Two and, space and a half dock, years. It's two and a half years. They don't do that. <laughs> in the, they don't do that in space dock. Space dock is not necessarily a construction facility. It's more of a, more of a, um, like a hub. Well, At least that's the way I, I, I can thought of it. I can understand that. Uh, it's just a little clunky. That's all. You know, I, I think we're going to have to change the, the the tagline for this podcast. We used to say "Inglorious Treksports," the the only podcast for Star Trek fans with the life. I think we've lost the right to uh, say that after this episode. Um, so, Rob, favorite space station? Well, I again, I got to go back. I got to go classic because I remember when I was a kid, the first time I saw K seven from the Trouble with Tribbles, and uh, it the design of it was just it had that sort of retro 50s or even before buck rogers design it just looked so cool the 
the the triangular yet circular nature of it all and it had it had different pods and then the center tower and i i it just looked awesome and i was a kid uh, you know they i wanted a model of it and they gave me one and i must have built six of them because i could never get the pylons to be on straight enough they always drooped or something and i i just love the design and it was great seeing uh greg jean go back and build a new model of it for troubles and uh, trials and tribulations and it what a it's just beautiful i just love it yeah i don't think anybody doesn't like k7 it's gorgeous and and you know you weren't seeing space stations like that at the time in 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 televised science fiction i mean that's an amazing model and and what you know greg jean did for the um the return, you know, for trials and tribulations is fantastic. I, I probably have this wrong, but I think the, the design of those pods was based on an actual concept for NASA. Uh, it, it was either TRW or Lockheed or someone had that idea for a sectional round uh, uh, compartment that they would attached to other things. Compartment? Yes. Storage compartments? Storage compartments? Storage compartments? Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but it, it is, it was an actual thing that they sort of grabbed and said, okay, well, we'll use this for our, for our, uh, our Star Trek space station. And it was absolutely brilliant. And when you first see it in the episode, it's like nothing you've seen before. And there it is. There's a space station and it fits perfectly within the world. Right. Like you never thought to yourself, well, that doesn't really belong you know and I, I which is what i think has happened in the last 10 years or 11 years the design work has seems less it was all and it, it seemed workable the, like the idea of you you had to walk out to these different pods like different things you never really saw it but different things would go on in different areas like one might be scientific and one might be something else it just even though you didn't it wasn't established that way but it still felt that way and then of course you saw it in the Franz Joseph technical manual as well. Right. Which added to its mystique, like, oh, it's real. Because it was in the tech manual. You know, the problem for me is it doesn't pass my blue bio test. When you're in the bar or in the <laughs> restaurant that you can't see out, it's more like Pizza Planet or, you know, one of well, the other, uh, remember, you know, Carnation Mark, when, Cafe, you can't really see the park. When we're in Mr. Lurie's office, we can see the Enterprise outside. So yes, but that, they so, don't serve food in Mr. Lurie's office. Sure they I do. Mr. That. Lurie doesn't go into the bar. He has food brought to him because he's the big head honcho, the big cheese. And how do you well, know we just didn't see the blue bayou? Like, like we're just in, in the bar where Cerno Jones is. We don't right. that there could have been a much bigger uh, mess hall because it is a big facility. We just didn't see it. Okay, fair enough. Then K seven's <laughs> a pretty bitching on space station. So Darren, what about you? What's your space station? Well, of course, Rob took mine. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. But so I, but I, I think I should probably mention Deep Space Nine. You know, mm -hmm. that's a space station, lest sure. we forget. Um, because it, it seems like it doesn't really seem like a space station in the show. It seems like a hotel. It seems like, uh, you know, a, a place just where people live. It doesn't seem like it's in space. It seems like it's something else. And I think that's a, that's an interesting sort of, uh, character trait that it has is that it's not a station. It's home, you know, it's home for the whole cast. Mm. So it gives it a little different sort of feeling, but uh, I think that the the design is pretty cool. I mean, the yeah. the, the the whole idea of those uh, those upright 
you know, spires that mm-hmm. have the shape of the Cardassian neck on them, which yeah. is really cool. And it sort of ties everything together and you believe that this is Cardassian technology and it's some really good design work on it. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty neat. I, I think that uh, it's something that, it's a direction that Star Trek hadn't gone in before. Uh, and yet it seemed like it fit. And it's also functional. You know, those pylons when you, you I would love when they would show a ship docked and as uh, the opening credit sequence, they changed, I think it was season three maybe. That the, and where you got to see much more activity outside the station in the opening credits mm-hmm. when they added the defiance yeah. and yeah. I, I loved I loved it just again knowing that ships of all shapes and sizes were coming and going all the time I love that I thought it was great it's a much more practical application of that idea than the space dock that you had to go through these giant doors yeah. and you could easily get trapped inside. I think Deep Space Nine just made a lot more visual sense. And not only that, but besides the design itself, the way it was set up with those spires, it just was perfect for beautiful composition. Yeah. You know, you'd have a foreground piece and a distant piece. And even though you weren't seeing the whole station, it just, I think there were a lot of really nice angles on yeah, that design. Tons of good angles. Tons yeah. of good angles. And, and let's whatever you, for, oh, go let's ahead. just not forget that the promenade was much like Main Street in Disneyland, where it had a multiple <laughs> stores. It had you know restaurants and gift shops and all kinds of stuff. It was like Main Street and the Blue Bayou because yeah. exactly. the upper level had the windows on it, so you could. So look it's out. a fine choice. Sorry, Darren. <laughs> Sorry, did it, Rob. Go did ahead. it have Dole Whip? <laughs> we don't know. Probably not. Because maybe some of those signs that we haven't had translated yet did say Dole Whip. And I believe that somewhere you could get Dole Whip on, on Deep Space Nine. And if you ordered it, uh, if you couldn't, Cork would find it for you. In the hollow suite. For the right That's price. a different kind of For dough. the right price. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, those, are good, those, are, those are good choices. So that leaves, uh, I haven't picked my space station yet. Um, I'm going to go, these are all really good choices. You didn't leave me a lot here. Uh, but I'm going to go actually with the space station. I like quite a bit. Wouldn't work. My Disneyland analogy does not work at all for this one, but uh, Epsilon 9 from Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, yes. Oh, that's you a, know, that's a great it, station. It's a really cool. I don't know what's going on because it's really big. I don't know what they do there. It's, it's not well, it's 22 a communication relay station. Yeah. It's, it's an air. It's a really, yeah. Relay array. It's an but, antenna, but where they, where the, the bridge of that certainly has great views. Yes, because you're like you're above it all, and you can see it all, and and I'm sure that there is a level there that you can have a bite to eat and yeah. look out the window. You have to. They got to be. Otherwise, what do they do? You and know, they're they're stationed on there. You know, they're not very good actors. They, see they the deadly V'ger cloud approaching. <laughs> Watch the poor little guy fly God, and get fried. Twenty two AU's in <laughs> diameter. Yeah. So, uh... That's within Klingon boundaries. Who are they fighting? <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> so uh I, I love that space station and i love when it um when it gets dissolved you know by v'ger and then we hear the blaster beam and you yeah. just see space you know yeah that's the real pattern space for mountain. data storage it's pattern for yeah. data storage and it winds up on the wall in the bar in star trek 3 <laughs> is that right yes wow you're a font of information but you know what else too about what I loved about the Epsilon Nine station is uh, it adds to Star Trek canon without 
overtly having to be beat over the head with it that right. there are these gigantic because space is so big uh like in hitchhiker's guide really big um that that you know that these 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 relay stations have to be the size they are in order to boost subspace communications around the the galaxy and i think that was one of the great the great things about star trek the motion picture is so much thought was put in to the miniatures and to the design of all of the material and epsilon 9 really encompasses that idea that someone's like okay well if if we're going to have subspace communications that we have to make it look formidable and i i remember seeing that when i first opening night i'm like wow that's an element of star trek that we've never seen before and it just added to the whole tapestry of the universe and bill uh, tell me if i'm wrong on this but i think that was one of the first times that they used the acid etched brass um technique of making all those little panels on there because uh, i know you guys yeah. you guys use that later on the on uh, blade runner a blade runner yeah and then we used it at, at ilm later as well but i think i think you're right because it, it's just so detailed and, and, uh, and you know, layer upon layer of, of interesting shapes that is on the surface of that, that makes it look so big and it gives it immediate sense of scale. I've got a couple of questions for you, Darren. The first one is, did that model get sold when they had the auction? Does it still exist? You know, Do we know? I don't know. I never, I never saw it in any of the, uh, any of mm. the auctions. Um, I think I would have remembered if it was, I, but I think that after they used it for set dressing in Star Trek Three, it might have gotten broken up a little bit. Right. How big well, was that something miniature? Something that fragile. Yeah. How big it was, was that miniature? Huge. It was. It it actually wasn't that big. Maybe five feet, something like that. Right. Five or six feet long. Not very big for something that you know should be big. Was it, it? It was bigger than the Cygnus or, or smaller than the Cygnus? Smaller than the Cygnus. Okay, so I get that black hole in there, just slip it in like that, you know, nobody notices a little black hole action there. Um, so the other question I have is in the voiceover, when we first see Epsilon 9 mm -hmm. space station, it sounds like somebody references a scout, like a Federation ship. They do. Scout. Yeah. Yeah. And my mind instantly went to, once again, the Franz Joseph blueprints, because remember they had the, the scout and then of course the dreadnought, right. which were just kind of, I, I think they also the... they also mentioned the dreadnought entend, which yeah. is which is uh, in that voiceover right after they talk about Commodore Probert. Right, right, and they use <laughs> I mean they use the the technical manual in in uh, in the movie movies as well on mm -hmm. the bridge. You know, you saw them on, on the, the readout, so yeah. it is canonical. Yeah, and we it's now real, know they man. use their fonts as well. Right, right. We did a, we did an episode on fonts a couple of weeks ago, Bill. That's so we're all. <laughs> oh, up I to heard it. Oh, good. Yeah. You heard it. <laughs> okay. It was it was great, and the Space 1999 episode was really it brought a tear to my eye. It was wonderful. <laughs> that's I think that's how we when we first met. That's we all bonded over Space 1999 because yeah. Darren introduced me to you at um, WonderCon uh, a couple of years ago, and you were either wearing a Space 1999 shirt, I think that, yeah, and that's, so we ended up talking about Space 1999 for a while. Well, when we do Space 1999 again, which inevitably we must, <laughs> we're gonna have to have Bill on right <laughs> to well, join we need, us. We need a, an entire episode on the Eagles. 
That's yeah, all we got to talk to 1612, the company that's built bringing out all the, you know, the diecast Eagles. Yeah. They're now doing the Hawks. They're I got to pay for my Hawks. They're coming out and the the <laughs> interceptors from the interceptors from UFO are on a ship waiting to dock. You know, I got to I've I been mean, waiting. I ordered the Hawk too and I ordered the uh the Comlock and the and the little the staple gun laser. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh... It's all coming and uh, I mean I've got I've got let's see I've I have 10 eagles right over there. And the and and including the Calador captain the captain uh, Zantor from uh Earthbound. Captain got Zantor. that oh. ship too. You know. We we passed the, the times toys. Toys. the worst of times. <laughs> yeah, the toys are the toys are out of control. But I mean, I can't, you know, the thing is, all of this came out of my love of Star Trek, you know, the, the, the ships. And I think one of the things that you, you can't really stress enough is that as a small child, the thing that I owned the most of were the AMT model kits of, of the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And then as the, the, the Battlecruiser, the Klingon Battlecruiser, which is still one of the great designs ever. And then you did get the Galileo and you did get the K-7. So as a kid, when you're putting them together, you develop sort of this intimate relationship with these ships and the parts and how everything works. And one it all felt thing, very functional. One of the things that I loved so much about the K7 kit was that it had a little enterprise in it. Yep. <laughs> and, greatest thing ever. Know, before the days of uh, 3D printing, if you wanted a little enterprise, you had to buy the, the kit. So it was, it was so much fun. And yeah. you could you could just play all day, you know, orbiting around K seven and you know transporting over, seeing what was wrong, checking out the storage compartments. Well, it was and, just and, a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it was, and you played with those things forever. And yeah. then, of course, as you you when they released the kits with the um, more decals, it's like, oh, I would take my box of Ohio blue tip matches for my mom and burn up one of the models to make it the constellation. You know, you had to cut, you had to cut into the things and then you get little flat pieces of styrene and you could stick it in there. And then there's decks, like here's like five different decks lined well, up and smash it in, it's great. Lest we forget the, the uh, cultural significance of the AMT models. They also appear in Close Encounters. <laughs> that's, that's right, they do. They have- Hanging they from have the, the ceiling. Hanging from the ceiling in Roy Neary's uh, den um, there's a Klingon ship in the Enterprise. Is there a K7? No, I think it's just the Klingon and the Enterprise. But when I saw that, I went, oh my God, this is my house. <laughs> and it's just magical. Oh, there we are. There we go. Would you like uh, mushrooms on your pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, uh, would I like this to be bigger? Yes. Don't, don't we always want things bigger? But um, boy... I can't wait to get uh, I can't wait to get the uh, the space that well the regular one space station which is really a repurposed motion right. picture space station. Well, I, I I built that regular one model and the space office model for them. So hopefully they'll be putting the space office model out pretty soon. I hope. Please. And hopefully you'll get one. I'm not holding my breath, but <laughs> it would be nice. <laughs> so, so, you know, Bill, you mentioned the, the yes. technical manual. And I think for, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that ship that's behind your head in the, uh, 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 you know, behind you right now. And for those right. of you watching on the Electric Now app, you can see it. If you're listening on audio, you can't. But can you describe for us what you're pointing at? Uh, it's the... Uh... SS Pasteur, 
that was used in the final episode of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. All good things. And did you? And, yeah, did you build that for them? Or uh... yes, I did. I did. It was. I was having a conversation with Mike Akuda, and he was talking about how, and, and this ties into kind of what we're talking about, the design aesthetic of the Federation ships and how there were certain rules. They all had to have the primary hull, the secondary hull, and then the cells. And he said that uh, they were having problems and that a lot of the average viewers couldn't tell the difference between them. Of course, we can because we know all the subtle differences. Um, and he said, but we're having a, a really hard time with that. So. I hearkened back to in the uh, making of Star Trek book, this yep. Stephen Whitfield one that yeah. came out in the late sixties, they had all these amazing drawings of the enterprise evolution before they picked the final design. And one of them had a spherical primary hull. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, well, what if that followed the same design arc as the enterprise and what, it, what would it look like in the world of the enterprise D and that's how I came up with the design. And then I started pestering Mike and I said, so what size models do they like at image G and what <laughs> mounting system do they use? And he said, oh, they use, you know, three quarter inch rod with a bayonet system and they like their models about three feet long. Uh, so I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> so I, I designed and built the Pasteur and then I sent Mike photos and within a month he said, we want to rent it. And I had no idea what for it was originally called the olympic i think i was working on ghostbusters 2 at the time and we were doing a lot of research on the titanic because we built a miniature mm. titanic that had come back to new york and uh found out that the sister ship of the titanic was the olympic right. so that's where that came from mm. but they ended up renting it from me uh and i got to keep it afterwards that's so what great it's rare and and of yeah. course that that direct lineage from matt jeffries is so great to see yeah and and the the way you the way you styled it to fit into you know 24th century uh next generation is just so well done and it looks great in the episode and it really does thank you it feels like star trek i mean you you, mm -hmm. you know that it's it fits in star trek and that's just that's a tricky thing to do well what i love about it is it, it felt in next generation that the ships really got to the point where all they would do is add a couple of warp nacelles. It's like, oh, instead of two, we'll give them three or we'll give them four. Or the, uh, you know, all the, a lot of the villains were just these big blocky rectangles. And what I loved about the Pestor then, and I love about it now, is like you said, that lineage that pays homage to Matt Jeffries, but it, it feels different. It feels like a different, you know, it's a medical ship that if it, it feels different than, um, you know, so much of, of, of Next Gen, which got to a point where it was cookie cutter. Now, obviously what I love about Next Generation is they were still using models then, but um, so much of it to me was not exciting because I just didn't love the design work that was going on there with a lot of those ships. I was just gonna say that um, I think that's one of the problems when you get, uh, when all the designs are coming from one person or even one art department, I think that there's, it feels more expansive if you've got different people contributing to this design aesthetic. Well, I, yeah, think, I mean, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rob. Well, I was going to say, you know, you were involved with, uh, I think, my favorite era of Star Trek ship design, which was the, the original classic feature films, beginning with motion picture. But I think in terms of one of my favorite uh, star starships that was new was the Reliant from Star Trek Two, 
And I still think to this day of all of the ships, maybe from any of the shows, the Reliant in terms of its relationship with the other ships that we'd seen. I mean, it was early on really nowadays. It's strange to say it's early on in Star Trek's design life because when it had come out, you know, it was the latest movie to come out and, and uh, who knew where Star Trek was going to go in 1982. But the Reliant was such an amazing design and it was so believable. It fit right into the, it felt so canonical and especially with the refit Enterprise. I mean, I know they had to make it look different from the Enterprise, but it was such a gorgeous beautiful design even though it has no navigational deflector <laughs> well that's not necessarily true well right we don't know where the navigational <laughs> deflector uh, and is. of course bill it's told just... that story uh on on the last time he was on the show about how the reliant was you know given to a harp bennett to approve and he looked at it upside down uh, and and that's how why the reliant uh looks the way that it does whether that story is apocryphal or not i think you were sort of on the fence about whether it's true or not, but uh, yeah, I, but that's the story. I certainly wasn't there for that. We got blueprints from the art department uh, that I believe it was designed by Mike Miner. I think so. And we just we followed the blueprints. But I agree, it was it was different enough, but it was also you could tell it was just another ship of the line. It totally matched and we did get a lot of concerns from production that it was going to look too much like the Enterprise because. Usually you've got the good guy ship and the bad guy ship, and it's pretty easy to tell them apart. Uh, I think they were concerned that the average viewer might have might have troubles with that. Well, also, I don't buy I... a lot of ships, but when I do, they're usually called the Reliant. <laughs> I love this. I love That's this great. ship. I mean, how many times can you buy the freaking Enterprise? Well, a lot. But <laughs> I just love the Reliant. I love my of course, Reliant. Now we know that that's called a Miranda class ship. Yes. <laughs> After but Miranda also, Jones. Not that that. Yes, after after Dr. Miranda Jones, absolutely. Also, along with the Pasteur, another great design. I mean, it predates the Pasteur, but the the Grissom in Star yeah. Trek Three, I thought as a scientific vessel, it still had that. It looked different. You could tell it was a smaller ship, but the fact that it was a research vessel for scientific research, it just made so much sense. Even though the the design was was different, it felt. I love the I love the design of the Grissom, and I think it fit right into that same lineage, and it was great. Yep. No matter how good their designs were, they all had stupid ass captains, though. Other than Terrell, they were all incompetent. It's like well, all these all these captains. It's amazing that the Federation lasted all those years because, uh, boy, there were some dumb captains. I mean, you know, to have the uh, you know from Ferris Bueller as the guy who took over the Enterprise from Kirk. Seriously. Oh my God! Or now you can say from Succession, he's right. just and they took in, the, that. They, in generations though they took the Excelsior, which was used it, to me. It was the AMC Pacer of space in Star Trek Three, and they added they added the big impulse engines to it, and they flared out the secondary hull and made it made it cooler. So that was a hard that was a hard task to pull off, and that shot the reveal shot when it's pulling out of space dock is again. An, an ILM special when ILM's on their game when they're on actually point, that that was dry dock right well dry dock that's what I say space dock you said space yeah, dock. it's no, okay I, I just want to make sure that we delineate yes, it because we <laughs> the only my only problem with generations <laughs> is we didn't get enough shots there's only like two there's the one shot when the, the camera's panning over and you see the enterprise b moving out of the dry dock I wanted more starship porn I needed to see more of that happening <laughs> 
That's my only I th- problem. I think that's one of the reasons why we all love Star Trek The Motion Picture so much. Because not only do you have that, you know, 90-minute sequence in space, to, in, in, in Dry Dock, in the Enterprise, which we all love so much. Um, but you also have things, you know, at the time, which were amazingly inventive, like the Vulcan shuttle, like the Surak, which, mm-hmm. you know, again, was yeah. just a completely original design, very simple, but very cool, where, you, you know, it, it jettisons the, 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 the pod, you know, the, the, the sled, sled. Yeah. and then, you know, docks with the Enterprise, which is so cool. They're kind of wasteful, you know. Kind of wasteful. They're not recycled. I guess they, they, wasn't there some line about, oh, store it in the hangar bay or something? I guess it doesn't just go off into space. Yeah. Oh, I thought it went back to the sled. Well, it yeah, did. it yeah it did because there was yeah. a there was a pilot in it, but ah. I think there but was there a restaurant? <laughs> no, I, I don't. No, I mean, I mean, because no, it would go the the shuttle portion because the would, shuttle went back to the yeah the shuttle went back and went and, away. Yeah, yeah, it just floated down the river like the blue bayou, <laughs> and you never saw the shuttle. <laughs> well, what I love about that is that um, in a, another version of one of the matte paintings for the uh, shuttle bay. Uh, Andy Probert had painted in a bunch of um, Federation shuttles that were that styling with the, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, the big sort of anvil head and uh, the, the structure behind it. And they're just so it, it's a it's a really subtle adaptation of the original series shuttle um, as if you slice the bottom off of it. Um, and if you don't have to worry about warp engines that's kind of the shape that you would get from it. And of course, with the, with the back of it, having that really neat round tubular connector that was standard on the Enterprise, um, it made it look like it fit completely. And it was, it was really beautiful design. And I, I wish they had shown more of those shuttles inside the Enterprise like uh, Andy had envisioned it. But Well, my question to you fine. is, did they ever get the shuttle right after the Galileo? Because, you know, of course, they had many iterations of, of shuttles and shuttle pods and shuttlecraft. But to me, you know, after you get past the, the original shuttlecraft, I don't think any of those shuttles were particularly good. Well, you know, one of the best ones, Bill, you had something to do with uh, the uh, I think one of the reveals of uh, Space Dock has a, a little shuttle that you built. Oh, that's, that's, that's correct. With that's, the red uh, engine. I designed it. I designed it and uh, John Goodson built it. And it was the inspiration for that came from the um, Orion in 2001. Mm. In fact, if you look at that shot, it's very much a 2001 because you're, you're rising up with it. Right. We're, we're looking at the bottom because, you know, you work on so many of these movies and after a while, it's like, how can we shoot this model from an angle we haven't seen before? Right. And that was, that was the whole inspiration for that shot. Kind of spiraling up toward the space dock. Because I think that's one of that's one of my favorite, um, you know, quote unquote modern shuttles. You know, we're talking from a point of view of being in the mid '80s, um, right? But uh, but honestly, I think that's been one of the most difficult things that designers on the movies had to deal with, because every time there was a different shuttle and they had to build a different yeah. one, and on Next Generation too. And I th- I don't think that they ever got a good shuttle after that. You know, the, the one I liked was the uh, the runabout. The runabout yeah. was the yeah. best of them, yeah. And and I had heard somewhere that that they were thinking about using the shuttle that that I had designed, but I think it was it was too sweet. It didn't fit with their aesthetic. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I like the runabout because it was bigger than like a Galo the Galileo, and it it needed to do more. It needed to go further, and and you could have you could arm it with or put it different pods on it, and it was it was. Yeah. I really liked that design. I thought it was. Great. Thing, I think originally they were thinking of having on the Voyager underneath where the captain's yacht would be uh, that that would be a runabout underneath there. And then they did a version of it that uh, was different later on. But uh, I think I did a pass of what that was going to be too on the pilot. But um, it's, it's, it's really hard because the, the, the original shuttles are so unique in terms of, uh, of their silhouette and the way they're, the, the way it's masked and, and the way that the, the angles happen on it and the way that it looks as it goes by, that it's really hard to get something that is as pleasing uh, in terms of shape and believable at the same time. The next generation shuttlecraft, I thought was a really cool design. Which one? Well, like the, the, the one, I think Andy Probert designed it, the very yep. swoopy one. That looked very similar to the Galileo. It, they made a toy of it too, like in the first Galoob yeah, made. Yeah. That, that one was very, it was very, it was like the Galileo, but much more rounded. But they couldn't mm -hmm. build it on set. Right. No, they never yeah. built one on set. That was the sad part because the, the poor guys in the, in the mill couldn't, couldn't do it in a week, you know, the way they were edges. needed to. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. Because the one that's on set is not particularly good. No, the ones that they built on set are all flat angles and all, mm -hmm. you know, much yeah. easier to build. And as such, they're a little less Star Trek-y to me. Well, and I also think because of the scale of that set, uh, you know, because they built the uh, the shuttle bay. And uh, so it, it's kind of smaller than it should be to, 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 to leave more room for on that set that was ne it was never as impressive as I saw, thought that set would be you right. know, having been on that set many times, you know, it's, you feel like that should be a really cool set, you know, and it just, it, it never was. I mean, I always thought that little, the model from the original of the shuttle bay was always so much cooler. And that was one of the good things they did in the, in the, um, the new effects. I always thought that the Galileo landing on the, sh on the shuttle bay was, was kind of cool. You know, there's that great scene in Conscience of the King where um, Kirk and Leela Colomi look down, That's you know, at the Leela shuttle Colomi. at night. No, what, that was uh, Lenore. Not Lenore, Lenore I always say that. I mean, the crazy one. All that Caridian, surging and where throbbing. Kirk and Lenore Caridian, you know, where he's trying to seduce her and they're walking along the, you know, the top of the, and it also makes the ship feel big and yeah. cool. Like, you know, they're above the observation deck looking down you know, and again, it passes the blue bayou test. It's like, wow, we've got these windows that look out at the ride with the ships coming in. It's very, it's like Space Mountain. It's even better, you know. So uh, it's 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 very it's very cool. You realize, um, of course, I'm going to have to do a CG thing that says the USS Blue Bayou. You know oh, that, yeah. I'm, I'm bring it on. I, that'd be great. That'd be great. Um, so we talked a lot about ships that we like. Um, and uh, these are all the good guys we haven't talked a lot about yet are the villains of Star Trek who have some really, really great ships. So let's let's talk about that. Maybe let's start this time with Darren. Uh, some oh, of your boy. favorite uh, villain ships. Well, obviously, the original Klingon cruiser that Matt Jeffries did um, that he originally had designed upside down with the nacelles coming up. Um, 
but that he felt that it looked meaner with it, you know, in that sort of uh, uh, wrestler's pose with the with the arms down. Uh, that Bill, you realized on the Bird of Prey had that sort of same kind of uh, you know uh, uh, swooping kind of feeling to it. But the original uh, D seven that they wound up calling it is so um, alien. Yet it has the same exact elements that the Enterprise does. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize it when you first see it, but it's all in proportion. The proportions are shifted on them. So it makes it look different, but all the elements are exactly the same. And it's fascinating how it works. And it's, uh, it's such a great, it's such a great ship to see. And, you know, even though it came in the, in the second season, um, you know, after the the Romulan bird of prey had been lost, uh, we still don't know where it is. Uh, but uh, you know, because the Romulan bird of prey is even closer to the Enterprise shapes and yeah. and and scale. Um, so it's it's just very interesting how these you know, various visual cues are put together in different ways to give you a different feeling altogether. But uh, I think never has it been more successful than in the original series uh, D7 Klingon Cruiser. Although I gotta say, like everything, the one time that I think that Star Trek actually improved on these designs was in the motion picture. You know, the, the 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 Star Trek, the motion picture to me, and I don't understand why anybody who's watching a Star or, or anybody who's making a Star Trek show, if you want to update Federation designs, you have to look at what they did in Star Trek, the motion picture, because everything you they made everything better. <laughs> Yeah. in my mind and because they the, stuck to the proportions yeah and the 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 katinga the the whatever you want to call it the yeah. refit the the upgraded d7 the katinga class i mean i remember i was 12 when star trek the motion picture opened i was there the first show that I, at the john dan cinema in seattle and in bellevue actually and when that came on screen first i lost my mind like I, 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 you know, and it's <laughs> not just one, it's three of them. And you've got one of the most incredible miniature shots ever executed with the, with the, 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 the 180 degree. <laughs> and it was a miniature shot good enough to make Doug Trumbull jealous. I mean, it, yeah. it was just, and the, the design <laughs> of that ship and the, the way they added all the detail to it without changing it, the design of it all, they actually improved it. And the same was true. I thought of, of course, everyone knows the refit Enterprise is my favorite spaceship. The refit Enterprise, as it was painted in Star Trek, the motion picture, they repainted it, ILM repainted it for obvious reasons, but still. Didn't repaint it, just covered it with We didn't dull repaint coat. it. Dull oh, coat. is that we what you did? not repaint it. Yeah. Oh. It's never been repainted as far as I know. It's just dull coat? That's all it is? To get cut down the pearlescent paint? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well. No, it's the same. It was the same paint job. It's just. And it's in it's in the offices of Blue Origin now. You can go you can go touch it if you want that model. Yeah. <laughs> but that I mean that was the thing. It was form over. It was they understood, like it was amazing to get that cutaway drawing of the refit Enterprise and like everything in Star Trek the motion picture because of I have it all, behind me the David Kimball uh, yeah it, everyone everything was thought out. Like now you know you see modern Star Trek and they've got these giant open spaces where the turbo lift elevators are are going to and fro and it's like wait what. 
what is this? It looks like a ride from Disneyland now. But um, the, 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 those does that design work, you, you really felt that, especially with ILM coming up with these ship designs, that you felt like there was so much thought put into them. And everyone, like you guys knew how these things worked. Like if someone said, where is this and how does this, it, it felt, and I think that was the thing about the designs, it felt like it worked. Like I believed it, that it, it did what it was supposed to do. Right. Well, and I think that, that the success that we had at ILM designing and building the new ships was totally based on what happened in Star Trek, the motion picture, because they try, they put so much energy and design and detail and thought into the aesthetic. And it was different. It was great because they weren't mimicking Star Wars, mm -hmm. even though the success of Star Wars is what got that movie, you know, mm -hmm. off the ground, they created their own aesthetic and like the, the ships being self-illuminated, all that stuff. It just, it was very easy to reflect on that and to know what the character of the Federation ships were and then come up with variations like uh, the Reliant, the Grissom, the uh, Excelsior. Excelsior. Yeah. Although remember, you know, it's important and I, I may have talked about this before, the Excelsior as originally envisioned was it was a bad guy it was right you know everyone looks at it and yeah. gives it a raspberry it yeah. was like Ugh, the future bleh. it was supposed to look a little goofy well i don't know about goofy it was supposed <laughs> to look very it was supposed to look very fast right and intimidating it was supposed to make them feel like oh shit we're in trouble well the front of it has that grill that's kind of err <laughs> 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 well, yeah, you know, ILM continued even they, the 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 Katinga that that model, what they did with it, what you guys did with it on Star Trek yeah. Six, you know, making Kronos One the paint job, and you added uh, again the extra brass, the the etched brass all over the ship, and the and a, and a new paint job, which made it almost even cooler. If it couldn't, if it wasn't cool enough already, what you guys did for Star Trek Six made it even cooler. I well, that was that was born out of cheapness. Yeah, we had uh, Phil Norwood had designed a this very cool double necked uh, Klingon ship, and uh, they just didn't want to pay for it, and so it was cheaper, of course, to repaint the model, and it kind of needed it. The paint job, unfortunately, was in pretty bad shape. So I'm glad you liked it. Oh, and even the even the the we'll call it a decal, but the logo. There was that cool logo that was on where the other the, the Klingon whatever you call it the tri, tri the three whatever what's it called, what Darren? Called. I have no idea what it's called. Yeah, well, the Klingon insignia, but yeah. they had that like the presidential insignia, whatever it was. And again, when it shows up, and again, the model for ILM really understood how to shoot starships in motion. You know, they were they were they were graceful, and then when you see that ship come in and it's it's going toward the enterprise and there's it, it's like you're underwater it's like it's a giant manta ray in space and it just the movement that's something that that ever since next generation starships don't move correctly they move too fast and i know that it's it doesn't really matter but when you're watching it what you guys did uh in star trek 2 mostly these two behemoth capital ships firing at each other was like they're at sea, it, it, that's how starships are supposed to move, not whipping around like an encounter at Farpoint when you see the drive section whip away from the saucer section, like, you know, and almost to a 180 <laughs> degree. I mean, I know why they did it, but but it's sort of, I mean, the, the Galaxy-class ship is so large, but having it move that quickly 
which seems silly considering the rates of speed they travel at, but it, it's the, it's the illusion as you're watching it, you know, you want to feel these are right. giant, massive, like the, the battle over uh, Coruscant in revenge of the Sith. When you see these giant, the, the, the stars, the, yeah. the capital ships fighting, it's like, and multi dimensions. I mean, that was like, yeah, man, these ILM folks, they know how to do starship battles. No one else does. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because the models are part of it and the models we all, you know, it's a, it's a thing that you can look at and you can see and you can touch. But I think that the, the credit needs to be shared with the cameramen and women at ILM yeah. because you could deliver a real piece of crap model on stage and the next day in dailies, they can make it look amazing mm. and vice versa. Sometimes you show up with these beautiful models and they just didn't look all that great. But I think they really are the unsung heroes of taking these objects, bouncing light off of them and really making them feel like you said, like they had scale and believability. I mean, that's that's the key. And I feel that we've really lost something. And maybe it's because when you're mostly dealing with CG, you can do anything with CG. And it really a great special effects shot is really about a design aesthetic with everything in the frame, not just the ship but the actual angles and the lighting, like you said, and, and the movement, it all works together. And when you actually have a physical model, you're kind of constrained by what you can do based on the mounts and, and, and things yeah. like that. Whereas if something's CG, it can do whatever. And it really depends. Now you've got like, let's have it do a barrel roll and then go 365 degrees. And then suddenly it's like, well, this doesn't feel like it's has let's any try weight at spinning. All. That's a good trick. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you you know you, you mentioned the uh the klingons and the klingon ships much like uh rob reiner's directing career could do no wrong for a long time and then suddenly went <laughs> off track dramatically and um you know it's like the klingon ships through most of its history were amazing then next generation you suddenly get them just, you know trying to do a superstar destroyer all of a sudden we're going to give the klingons you know a, a super giant ship and that's you know where it starts to all fall, fall apart and then by the time you get to discovery i don't know what that ship was but um it, it, it's 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 discovery, really amazing how the evolution of um the Klingon ships, you know, for so long are so great. I mean, certainly through Star Trek six and then, you know, your bird of prey design, which is everything about that is amazing. Other than the fact that it's called the bird of prey, um, you know, is, 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 is fantastic because, you know, of course, if we've talked about this, that originally it was supposed to be in the script Romulan. So it made sense that it was the bird yes. of prey. And then, you know, they never changed, you know, what they called it, but I mean, it's a, gorgeous ship and obviously it's probably like the the toyota prius of um of star <laughs> trek films because it's just made it through like every era since it was designed and and it works you know it works in the movies it works in the tv shows and you know it's such a great you know great little ship um and and very very effective and of course you know we didn't really mention as much the, the romulan bird of prey uh in the original series uh which is was also a gorgeous ship gorgeous uh which looms so much larger than it's um it's presence in actual episodes right because it's only in one no in it's, in the, it's in the deadly years too isn't it is it yeah, i don't I know think, maybe it is i mean that, I obviously they use stock footage from the other episode yeah yeah, yeah exactly but uh yeah i mean it, it's just so again the same visual elements 
from the enterprise being rejiggered around and 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 uh, changed slightly makes it look alien and but yet fits it in that universe. So it's, well, before it's we great. talk about our favorite Star Trek ship of all time, I want to say you know I certainly would give honorary mention to the Botany Bay. Simple, and very effective. Love that ship in Space Seed. Mm. And again, it's you know it was expensive to build miniatures back then. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, it is now, but um, uh, it was remarkable that they were able to generate so many original ships and such a such a unique, cool, distinctive design. Which is why when they use it as stock footage later, uh, it's so frustrating because it's it's so iconic right. so when they say it's something else you're like no it's not that's the potney yeah. bay that's not <laughs> the aurora whatever it showed up. oh and you know m5 it's not an or right. m5 yeah, yeah freighter yeah yeah the, the, one of the great things that i love about the botany bay is that it's the it's a cross between a submarine and a pencil <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's just so cool because these are these are familiar shapes and it looks like it could be a spaceship and especially you know when you see the 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 you know the neckline of uh, of containers on it that it looks like it's functional and it looks like yeah. it took off from earth in the in the 1990s you know uh it it's feasible and it looks like it it looks like it it does what it does and it has that design lineage with the leaf erickson that only ever appeared as a model kit well, that's you know true. the AMT, and it's got the same like sub conning tower business in it, which I, I've always loved that ship. I loved it when it was the UFO glow in the dark, you know, alien. Oh yeah, that's it. That was a great model kit because I think Matt Jeffries designed that as well. He did. Yeah, he, he did. designed that, and it was going to be a Star Trek ship or something. Well, it was going to be for some other show. Oh, okay. There was another show that he was working on that they were developing. I don't know if it was War of the Worlds. Or, or something else, another sci-fi show. But uh, he did design it. And of course, the connection to the AMT company was um, Stephen Poe, Stephen Whitfield. Right. Um, and, you know, they had a, uh, you know, a connection for years. And when, uh, when Matt Jeffries came up with this design, they said, oh, well, this is cool. We could sell this. This is nice. You know, it, it, I, we got we can't assume that everyone listening to the show knows the history there. So maybe Darren, you can explain, you know, the AMT Star Trek connection because it's such a great story, and it just goes to show how, in a way, low budget Star Trek really was at the time. Well, at the time, uh, the AMT company was very interested in getting the rights to produce model kits. Um, they were a company that did pretty much exclusively automobile kits, um, and uh, at that point, they realized that uh, this Star Trek show might, you know, be an interesting subject for them to branch out and start doing different kinds of kits. And one of the people who worked for AMT, who was uh, Stephen Whitfield, uh, uh, connected with the production. I think when they were uh, when they were uh, trying to find out if a license could be obtained to do the show or to do the model kit. And they said, well, look, can you help us with this? We're trying to, uh, we're trying to build a, a, a space shuttle, a, a, a shuttlecraft for an episode. And we don't have enough budget for it. Maybe if you help us build the full-size one, we can just give you the license 
and you can make the make the model kit, uh, you know, for a certain period of time. And so they agreed to that. And so the A&T company built the full size uh, Galileo shuttlecraft and they got the license to do. And the Columbia. Well, well and the same the, thing. And the Columbia, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that there was just, you know, the right people at the right time and having the right opportunities. And that sort of, uh, you know, introduced them to uh, Matt Jeffries. And, uh, you know, Matt, of course, had a couple other shuttle designs uh, that he was trying to figure out how they could build it. And they were, again, very curvy and very, you know, had a lot of Matt Jeffries signature shapes in them, but they had to simplify. And so uh, the people at the AMT uh, design house uh, helped figure out how to do that and still make it fit within Star Trek. Well, and before we reveal our, our favorite Trek spaceship, I don't want to be accused of being so dismissive of Next Generation and maybe some of the later shows. So it's worth pointing out that Next Generation did have some great design work, Absolutely. including you know, the Borg Cube, which is a terrific, uh, terrific ship. Um, you know, it had the Shellyac Corporate, uh, which is a fun, fun ship um, from... Uh, was it Ensign's Command? I think I, I don't. I remember. loved her on, uh, on uh, um, uh, Charlie's Angels. <laughs> oh, um, Shelly Act, not Shelly. Yeah, but do you? You're not Shelly Hack. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The a ship, Lad. <laughs> I'll tell you a ship that I really loved in Next Generation. That's that um, that Andy Probert talked about in our our documentaries is the Talarian ship that had the the circular propulsion system in the middle of the ship mm -hmm. and it was rotating like a gyroscope, a kaleidoscope kind of a thing. And it, it, uh, Eagle Moss, as a matter of fact, I have one that's uh, going to ship to me at some point, but I love that design. And, and I remember that Andy, Andy tells the story of like, they designed this thing and, and, and they, somebody, gee, it was Gene who said, well, yeah, you can have the ball there. Who's to say it, that that's doesn't like push it or pull it along. Like, why not? You know, and Andy's like, great, we'll do this. And it's such an interesting, intriguing uh, ship. And that was from the first season of, of Next Generation. So where do you fall on the Romulan Warbird, which was one of their signature ships? Oh, love that ship. Did you, do you remember that, Bill? The Dideradex? Yeah. The that, that's a beautiful, I love that ship. That's, uh, I think, Greg Jean built that, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it looks big. You know, it's a big, we'd seen Romulans before having, they're either using the D7 or they're using the, the Bird of Prey, but it was small. This was a huge ship that was bigger than the Galaxy Class Enterprise. Yeah, that the Galaxy Class could fly through. I mean, it, 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 it was huge. I love that. It doesn't show up till the last episode, the first season of, yeah. of Next Gen. We're back. Okay. <laughs> whatever you say guys it's good to see you any any other highlights of next generation shipography well bill you you were around when they were building the uh the d weren't you yeah oh absolutely yeah, i worked on it how how did that go how how fast did you have to get that one done um as i recall we had a, a good amount of time it, it wasn't, we work, weren't working on the episodes per se, where they're under this tremendous pressure mm. to get stuff done quickly. And everyone knew that it was going to be one of the stars of the show. Right. So we did have uh, a good amount of time. It was very large. As you know, they abandoned it after a couple 
seasons mm. and went with a smaller ship that was just easier easier to light easier right. to shoot um but it it had a lot of really unique things about it like the we got to see the the dish detach mm-hmm. because it had i view the original series enterprises art deco and i felt that uh, what was really nice uh, really beautiful about the enterprise d was it was more art nouveau it was very yeah. swoopy and thin but it was difficult to build because of that to figure out where to put a uh, mounting armature like on the side and in the bottom it, because it was so thin in the back, it was it was difficult to do, and it, it was very very sculptural. Yeah. Overall, when I, I really I love the E also in First Contact, mm. which I thought was a was a was a, a nice ship. It felt like a warship a, too. I think that's a John Eves, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, I uh, when we were I was working on the documentaries for Next Generation for Blu-ray, and one of the things that they sent us was all of the ILM photography from Encounter at Farpoint. It's about two hours worth of material, all from the opening credit sequence and all of the model photography. And they, we, I even, I still have it all. And um, all the lighting tests, like you guys were doing tests about how, how to light up the, the hull. It was all kinds of lighting tests. Mm-hmm. And the, the photography that you guys pulled off, like when the saucer does before the, before the drive section whips away, but when the saucer section does separate, there's some amazing model photography that you guys did that they reused quite a bit throughout the the series. I mean, they you did do some, because they wanted to do library shots originally. They're like, yes. we're only going to need 20 shots of the Enterprise that we're going to, and then of course, naked now, they're like, nope, you've got a whole second ship. You got to see Kofsky <laughs> and you've got a, blow up yeah. a part of the star and <laughs> nope so much for your your catalog of shots we got a bunch more we have to go do and that's that was problematic for them but do you, better uh, for us bill do you remember um uh a sort of a false start on painting the d uh where there was a a, a change of uh, change of direction after it was done the first time yeah it it's the panels were a very light blue and a very light green. And I think ultimately they were too, it was all spec'd the uh, back then we used automotive lacquers. And so it was all spec to us exactly what the colors were. Um, And I think the blue and the green were a little too close to each other. So I do remember a very frantic couple of days where we had to go in and do lots of pencil lines um, to the exterior to, to, to make the panels more apparent, because if you didn't see those panels, it was just too, it was too simple. Too flat. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you one of my favorite sequences that I know you were involved with, um, in a movie I don't love, but I love the sequence is the deflector dish, uh, not the deflector dish. I do love that sequence of first contact, but in generations, when the ship, the saucer crashes on the yeah. on Viridian three, oh, yeah. I just think that is like a spectacular. I remember seeing that movie and up until that point, I was sort of, you know, not very engaged with the movie. And I feel like it just comes to life. And it it always um, is a huge disappointment to me that the sequence that was supposed to happen after that, where they had the phaser fight on the destroyed ship on, on top of it, never came to fruition because I feel like that would have been one of the great sequences in Star Trek history, but you know, it was a victim to budget, but the whole, the whole crash is just so phenomenal. And it holds up. It does. I mean, I love it because it's a model smashing through debris and landscape and it's awesome. 
<laughs> that was my demo disc for Laserdisc for a while. Oh, it was that, so that, good. That crash. I would use that, <laughs> you know, uh, that would be my demo when I would show people how great Laserdisc is. I would show them the crash of, uh, of the Enterprise and Generations. And then I think shortly thereafter, it became uh, the Imperial Walkers uh, from uh, Empire. But uh, for a while, Generations was my, my demo. What's so great about it is it happens in broad daylight. Yeah, you know, and, and it's so brightly lit, and it, it's hard to do scale miniature effects and make them, you know, when it's crashing through trees like that initial impact. I know you shoot it in high with high speed cameras and everything, but it yeah. looks great. I mean, it's just with the debris coming over the the, the primary hull. I mean, oh, it it's couldn't so happen awesome. to it. Couldn't happen to a nicer ship. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of nice ships. Let's yes. talk about our favorite Star Trek spaceships or spaceship. Maybe it's not a plural, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll start with, uh, let's start with you as our guest, Bill. Uh -oh. Favorite Star Trek ship. Uh, you know, because I've had a up close personal relationship with it and it's because it's the obvious choice, um, the original Enterprise model, yeah. which I was lucky enough to be part of the team that worked on the restoration at the Smithsonian. Uh, and also being a person who tried to build a replica of it and realizing that it, the proportions on it have to be so precise or it doesn't work. There's just something about that model yeah. that's um, it's kind of undescribable of how all the balances work, where the engines fit, where the, the size of the hull, all those things. And it had this, you talk about successful art and successful design. The first time you see it, it just makes sense. And I think it's the elements of the graphics that were from like an aircraft carrier and the little lines on the hull that mark things, the windows, all those things really added up to it just being so convincing and such a beautiful and unique design. There are golden ratios all over the place on the Enterprise. Yeah. It is so surprising when you when you hold that spiral up and you see where things line up, it fits perfectly. Yeah. And there is something magic about it. There is absolutely something magic about it and uh, how they shot it with the extremely, uh, you know, wide angle lens on uh, on the original series that made it look huge. And it's something that is very, you know, I. I've seen, you know, everyone who starts building 3D models builds an Enterprise, an original TV series yeah. Enterprise. And seeing the different outcomes of all of these attempts is very interesting because it kind of, it kind of separates people in terms of uh, strata. And I just find it so fascinating that yes, it, the proportions have to be exactly right, or it just doesn't look right, and, yeah. and you can't you can't tell why exactly. It just doesn't feel right, and you know that's right. partially from watching it endlessly as a kid, but I think there's also something inherently good about the about the the whole layout of it. Oh, there has to be. And it, it connects to all these other things we've been talking about in some way. Yeah. Like it's, it's the mother of them all. Yeah. And just so I, I don't seem so obvious, I want to throw in an honorable mention of the Aqua Shuttle. Oh, yeah. From the animated show. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a great. The Aqua Shuttle is awesome. That's a great pick. That's a great pick. It's, it's super cool. <laughs> 
and the episode is um the turretin well, not turretin no uh, the ambergris element right a ambergris element yeah right yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> a great guys. pick i'd love to see that i'd love to see that in live action that's awesome have you built did, one did, of those bill no i'd like to not yet bring it to the yet. air show did, did, i mean eagle moss has those shuttle collections they they need to do because the animated series had that other weird like Duesenberg version of the of a shuttle that was in there. Yeah. It looked like an old, you know, the the big one with the like what what is that yeah. shuttle? And then the the aqua shuttle and the Well, what I also love is they took the grain ship from the animated series uh um and and used that when they redid the effects yep. for um uh for for, for uh, Ultimate Computer. Was right. it Ultimate Computer where they so. used the the agro uh ship yeah. from uh which is um was super which is it was a super fun thing i thought because i love that aggro ship from more troubles more troubles. yeah was, that, and that's another really cool star trek like design now, bill like you I, did build one of those didn't you i did i did <laughs> oh <laughs> and i cool. gave it to greg gene oh that's oh awesome. that's nice that's awesome that's nice um be before any of us could ask <laughs> um Okay, so now Rob, it's it's up to you. Um, uh, Bill had his pick and his honorable mention. Now, uh, I think. Well, oh, you vote Sarica Vulcan. I, I I mean, look, my favorite starship of all time is of course the original Enterprise, but I have to go with the refit from Star Trek: The Motion Picture because, to me, I was so worried. Like you saw the what was that that Mike Miner painting that was mm -hmm. on that early poster for Star yeah. Trek: The Motion Picture and on the cover of Starlog number. Yeah, there was Ooh, that, and, but then the the, the, po I the poster. Yeah. I've got the poster of the angled yeah. picture with, and I looked at him. I I was unsure because it wasn't the final version, but when I saw that, I mean, I I was about to become a teenager, you know, and they were taking my favorite thing in the world and updating it. And it was done, The uh, again, the proportions might not be exactly the same, but they were perfect in terms of, okay, they're not, the warp nacelles are not but round anymore. But they fit with each other. They, it, yes, it all worked so, and again, that Christmas, Christmas of 1979, AMT had that model kit out, so you could, you could immediately you know start familiarizing your get your hands on that baby you know literally put it together and you could understand the 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 design of it and it was such an amazingly well thought out update of the enterprise that both honored the original proportions and it seemed it just with the swept back nacelles it looked faster and yeah. everything about it was just the greatest thing ever well, the, like, a the amt kit gave you a first opportunity to build it badly Oh, yeah. <laughs> For those of us who are way less talented than you guys, oh, my God, I can't tell you how oh, many no, times I, I, I went through that. three of them. I went through three of them before I had one that could actually stay together. Oh, man. It was I was ready to go back to the Cygnus at that point. It was. It and was it had I mean, a great model kit. It yeah. had those, it li those lights. We did. It had those lights. Was, they were a little rickety, those lights, but they worked. Yeah. <laughs> they worked. I know. I love turning that thing on uh, at night. And, uh, you know, oh, it was awesome. It went right next to my glow-in-the-dark Godzilla and my <laughs> UFO ship. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, so, and the bridge. I remember, God, I, doing the show brings back all these men. I hadn't thought about building the bridge in forever, that AMT bridge set. Yeah. That was wild. 
Okay, so uh, we got Bill, we got Rob. Comes to you, Darren. Well, favorite ship and honorary mention. Obviously, my my favorite uh, my favorite ones have already been taken. But I am going to mention one that I absolutely love that hasn't been mentioned yet: the Travel Pod. Oh, the yeah. Travel great. Pod is so good. It, there is a Travel Pod available at Cargo Darren. Six. Yeah, Cargo Six. Um, <laughs> the thing is that. It is completely new, yet it still has those angles that the shuttlecraft does. Yep. But it's but it's a completely different shape. And it's so great because it makes you think of the old stuff, but it looks absolutely new and thought out and real. Yeah. And yep. I don't care if there's a big window on the front. I believe it. I believe it works because mm -hmm. you see it working. Yes, yes. And it's 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 so great. And you know, Scotty Scotty knows how to fly it because Rick Sternback came in one morning and told Jimmy Doohan how to fly it. Um, and it's it's just so much fun to see Captain Kirk and Scotty flying around the Enterprise in this great little ship. And I absolutely well, it's love funny it. you say that because when I would go to Disneyland to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> and you'd go in those little carts through Tomorrowland uh -huh. and you'd look out at everything. I would pretend I was in a travel pod. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> anyway, that's a great pick. And uh, do you have an honorary mention or no? Well, you know, I, that is the honorary. That mention. is the honorary mention. Yeah. Because okay. obviously, my first love is the original Enterprise. And now I'm going to. And I'm, my my wife is the movie Enterprise. So ah. <laughs> now I'm going to say something. I don't want you to hang up on me because we have to finish the podcast. And you know, I think I'm going to say something very offensive. But you know, obviously, <gasps> look, I completely agree. For me, it's the original Enter Matt Jeffries Enterprise and the refit. Both of them. You know, they're both stunning and and uh you know while there are other ships that i love like the star destroyer and the galactica you know that are close behind there's only one enterprise you, you always remember your first true love so um i'm gonna have to say since you've taken so many ships off the board <laughs> and 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 i again i i i this is you know i know you're gonna hate me for this but you all know i'm a huge james bond fan so i'm an enormous fan of uh, ken adam and yes. so I'm going to go. Okay. I know where you're with, going. I'm going to go with the D Discovery, which was the original Ken Adam design for the Enterprise. And uh, I, I hope you won't, you'll forgive me for my trespass. I'm leaving. Uh, that's it. No. <laughs> but, but you know, but what's interesting, well, okay. you know, that, that original Discovery design appears in Star Trek Three inside Space Dock, one of the yes. study models. Well, I'll pick that one then. Um <laughs> And I wish that they had stuck more along those lines instead of redesigning it after Brian Fuller left. So, to yeah, I mean, look, and obviously this is a ship that Brian Fuller, um, it was his idea to use the Ken Adam design. For those of you know, who saw it, the Comic-Con demo reel, it was much closer to mm. the Ken Adam design, which I prefer. Um, and again, you know, you didn't leave me with, with you know, you left well, me with table scraps here, guys. The only problem so, I have with the Discovery version is the spinning. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm talking about the aesthetics. The aesthetics of the are, design. The aesthetics I'm not talking fine. about how it functions. They're fine. So, the proportions could it, be adjusted a little bit back to Ken Adams. And uh, you know, I'm a huge Ken Adam fan. Of course, you know, I'm a yes. huge Ken Adam fan. So as we are uh, all, as we are all, you know. And, and look, uh, I just once want to see that amazing 
shot that was done for phase two of the enterprise going into the asteroid star base. Yep. You know, that to me is like one of the great I- images of all time that's never been done in Star Trek. And if you're going to steal something from that early, I mean, Star Mandalorian is doing that so well, going back to the early Ralph McQuarrie designs and, you know, and I, I, I'd love to see Star Trek, you know, utilize some of that original design work better. Um, but uh, it was not to be sure. Uh, but this was, hey, this was interesting. This was a, this is a fun show. If well, I do I, say I so myself. Ask, I didn't get to ask Bill about the Messiah from Deep Impact. Oh, oh wait, yeah. I guess. You, I think somebody went on to IMDB before this is what I'm guessing. <laughs> you bring up Twilight and Deep Impact. Well, I, I'm just a huge fan of, uh, of uh, the, I love Deep Impact. I love that movie. Oh, are you, are you being serious? Yeah. Oh no, I, 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 I am. I love that design, and I'm a big fan of like real space. Um, when Mark brought up Moonraker, Ken Adam or something, I was, I was, I thought you were going to go with the Moonraker space, the space station in Moonraker. <laughs> oh, I was going to go with the space shuttle Enterprise. Yeah, but, yeah. but I didn't. But no, no. I mean, I that design. I mean, I'm a big Jerry Anderson fan, and I love UFO and 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 Space 1999. The design work there, but I always loved the messiah from i have a model kit of it somewhere that i've never actually built you know what enterprise i love too the xcu 330 you know the ring ship from star trek the motion picture when they're on the um the rec deck and he says these ships were all named enterprise and and it's the uh it's the ring uh eagle moss makes a great version of that oh do they yeah Yeah, it's really cool that i don't have have. to ask them to send it to me and they won't so i'll buy it So you know, um, Eco Moss and Disneyland really need to, you know, kind of sponsor this particular. They sure that would be a beautiful <laughs> they thing. They get mentioned a lot. <laughs> they get mentioned a lot. Well, you know yeah, what? And, 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 when we were your kid, when we were kids, we couldn't get like the sh- what you wanted. The ships, like, when is someone going to make a model kit of the Grissom? You know, they didn't, and until now, you can get one now. But I, that was what was so great about Eagle Moss is they made everything doesn't matter what it is the technical manual where there are all these ships we'd never seen before it's like there's a whole fleet you know we're all one big happy fleet it's like the coolest thing ever and then you could imagine guys up there (laughs) well then when they made starfleet battles miniatures they finally made they made really great miniatures of the franz joseph ships you know you could get this i mean it was small it was like this big but the dreadnought was awesome you know well, the Dreadnought was always like, that was always the, the kick-ass ship that you wanted to see. Right. You know, it's like, oh, man, this, this ship, you know, getting need to bigger have... and better and more armored than the Enterprise. Ooh, we, I want to see that We may ship. need to have an entire episode about the technical manual and, yes, and the absolutely. blueprints. Because we should. It's just so so much great stuff in there that it. it yeah, we got to do that. We got to do that. And you know what? We, we also have to do. We have to have Bill George come back because he's always such a great guest on the show. And we're always so Aww. happy to have him. And uh, I hope that, you know, unfortunately, while we don't want to stay at home order and pandemic to continue any longer, you know, we, we, you know, hope hopefully during this mess, you'll be able to beam yourself back into the podcast because it's always great having you. So is there anything new we can expect for the air show? Anything, uh, any new additions to the museum, to to the airfield? I I have, sadly, I have not been working. I've been doing selfish little projects for myself. Well, I haven't been working on the air show. The air show, you know, the models have to be big for that to yeah. hold up 
for depth of field and they're major undertakings and I'm really enjoying just doing fun little stuff for myself. So I'm being selfish. Yes, I'm that's sorry. Okay. That's not Think right. of the kids, Bill. Think <laughs> of the kids. <laughs> Think of the children. <laughs> uh, well, like this me. has been great. And, and Bill, just remind us if for people, what? if they want to go visit the sci-fi air show, obviously they need to go online because people aren't allowed to visit in person these days. What's yes. the URL? It's www.scifiairshow.com. Awesome. And you can listen to Rob on the Burr Network on YouTube. And you can listen to uh, Darren and I every week here on the Trexperts. And uh, we hope you'll join us again for another episode next week. Uh, we want to thank our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, our production coordinator, Peter Holmstrom, production associate, Zach Raggetts, and uh, our producer, Natalie Miscali. And of course, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can also download it or stream it on the Electric Now video podcast app. So download that wherever you get your apps at your favorite app store. You can see the Pastor in all its glory in Bill George's study. So that will be a real <laughs> treat for you. Because that is a bitchin' looking spaceship. Now, we have to remind so. people that the episodes, uh, when they hit the audio version, um, aren't on the app at the same time. They show up on the app later. So we just have to remind people that they can't, you know, they wow. can't see it immediately. But oh, is, look, you have to have patience. You have to have look patience. Look at that. Wow. It's so Look at cool. that motion control, that smooth motion, motion control. control. <laughs> That's much bigger than it looks in, wow. in the background. Now that That's you a beautiful it up, ship there. That's a there. big, big, big model. I remember when I covered all good things for uh, Cinefantastic. Oh, look at that. And of course, they wouldn't provide art. So um, I guess uh, Fred did frame grabs of the Pasteur from TV in order to put it in Cinefantastique. Taking I photos, the of the, of it. photos of the screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off, the, off the screen, the screen captures. Crazy. Off, off TV, <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember I, was, I remember being on the bridge of the Pasteur when I was covering all good things for, um, for Cinefantastique way back when, back when I was young. Well, and uh, I think it's a, it's a great treat. thing that all four of us have touched the movie Enterprise. And That's true. That it, literally. It, it, we haven't just been touched by it. We've right. done the touching yes. and not in a creepy way. <laughs> no, in a in a loving and respectful way. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I tried to get we, my hand really into that hangar deck. Let me tell watch you. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob, you always have to take it one step too far. Sorry. <laughs> one step beyond. That was a real treat. And I'm, we're deeply indebted to you, Darren, for uh, the day that uh, that it was uncrated well, to have we're us. We're indebted to the. I don't go to the valley for just anything. <laughs> <laughs> we're indebted to all the artisans who made it and who made Star Trek all through the years. So. And many who aren't aren't here with us. That's true. Any longer, That's and it's, true. it's we, we we're losing people every day from our favorite franchises. It's really sad. It's sad. So anyway, on that note, I want to thank you for listening to Inglorious Trexperts. We'll be back next Friday with an all new episode. Until then, on behalf of Bill, Darren, Rob, myself, Mark Altman, we wish you to keep on trekking safely and at home and gloriously, of course.
This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.